Hello, you're very welcome to The Week That Really Was with John McGurk and no David Quinn this week. He is absent, I'm afraid to say, but we have a replacement um, who I'm very happy to have with us, mainly because she works for me and she can't say anything negative and she has to agree with everything I say. It's Fatima Gunning. Fatima, we're delighted to have have you with us. Thank you for asking me to fill in. Um, I'm happy to, to, uh, to try and fill in for David. I'll do the best I can. For those of you who don't know Fatima, uh, you should know her, and I'm sure you will know her in the co- in, in the coming months. She is, first and foremost, she is an absolutely excellent reporter. Um, she is just back from a long stint uh, living and working in South Korea, and we might talk about that later on in the show. She has raced in the last couple of weeks to 4,000 followers on Twitter, mainly because, unlike me and unlike David, she's you you lack a bit of caution, Fatima. You say what you think. You're not afraid to post um edgy takes and people like it and they're they're reacting to your stuff and also your your work has been um of of really high quality and some of the pieces you discuss you've done we might discuss later on in the show but i wanted to start this show by talking about an issue which um is is close to my heart because i think it's really important nationally and also i know uh close to yours and you wrote a really strong piece on it today for us which is the situation with uh, in the criminal courts where Judge Martin Nolan has been handing out the sweeties again. He has indeed. Um, I think one of the, the cases this week was of a 19-year-old guy called Josh Conlon who was involved in a, a pretty you know brutal attack on um, a man and a woman. I think the, the woman in particular was subjected to what was described as torture, where she was she had boiling water poured on her repeatedly. Now, I think Judge Nolan, one of the reasons he let Conlon off, so to speak, well, he actually gave him a three-year sentence, which he then fully suspended, was that he wasn't the the main aggressor in the assault. Sorry, what, what did he mean by that? So this guy, he, he wasn't actually, he, did he pour the boiling water? No, I think it was another person. It was a kind of a co-accused who did most of the kind of the gnarly stuff. But obviously this guy, Conlon, was involved and, you know, it doesn't seem like he tried to, to stop it at any point. So it, it seemed to have happened with his approval. No, you have to be a fairly hardened criminal, I would suspect, to uh, to to watch your mate pour boiling water on another living human being and do nothing. It's horrific. Like one of the things I said in my piece was that I think almost everyone will be aware of how painful it is to even have a small burn from boiling water. So to have it poured on you repeatedly, I don't think I can even imagine. What was the purpose of this? What what was the was the reason for the assault? Was it theft? I believe it was a dispute over drugs or missing drugs. Um, and the the assailants had demanded that seven thousand euro be produced in lieu of the missing drugs, and that didn't happen. Okay. Um, yeah. So this guy essentially is involved in torturing a woman for money, um, for yes, drugs, possibly. And by the way, there was a, there was a piece in one of the papers last week, and I'm sorry I can't remember which one it was, so I can't credit the journalist who wrote it. Um, but there was a piece, I think it was in the Irish Times, about how often these days the families of people, you know, if if you're a if you're a mother, for example, and your son is unfortunate enough to get involved in this crap, um, drug dealers are often going after families, and they're going after um mothers and occasionally forcing them even into prostitution to pay back their son's debts. So this sounds like it might have been, we don't know for certain, it, it, it sounds very much like this was this was an attack based on intimidating people in relation to drugs. Mm-hmm. And this mm-hmm. guy, Common, is heavily involved in it. Uh, what did Judge Nolan give him? He gave him a three-year um, fully suspended sentence. So he's not going to do a single day in jail? 
No, he he was pictured leaving the court with a, a smile on his face, raising the middle finger towards the cameraman. So he looked very sorry indeed. <laughs> right. Yeah. And, the, and then you mentioned another case where there were two two ladies. Were they from Iraq or were they? they, they yeah, they, so they, they're, they're two uh, sisters, um, Hala Salman al-Bazali and her sister Ragad Salman al-Bazali who they moved to Spain with their parents in the year 2000. And after some time there, they were given Spanish nationality. So they're dual citizens. They have Iraqi and Spanish citizenship. Mm -hmm. They came to Ireland and claimed asylum on their Iraqi like citizenship with their Iraqi nationality and, you know, claimed asylum seeker benefits uh, that were just over 10,000 euro. So, you know, they, they, they falsely claimed to be asylum seekers and took 10,000 euro from the Irish state. So they, they took the 10,000 euro from the state. That's interesting yeah. because there was a very famous case. I think it happened when you were overseas years ago where a man was before Judge Nolan um, on the grounds that he had also defrauded the state. He had been importing garlic, um, I think from France, but it may have been from somewhere else. And he hadn't paid the correct amount of VAT on it. And he got a lengthy custodial sentence from Judge Nolan. So I presume these ladies got the same. Well, I don't think lengthy is exactly the right expression. They were given 16 months, which was fully suspended. So they also got to walk free from the court. Ah, uh, yes, that's why I saw them smiling yeah. in the photographs. Yeah, okay. I mean, you know, getting away scot-free might be an appropriate description of what happened. So what exactly do you have to do to get sent to prison by Martin Nolan. I mean, importing um, garlic without paying VAT on it seems to be something, but um, it's it, it really is extraordinary. What's your impression? You're back in the country. Hmm. You How long did you spend out of Ireland in total? Um, South Korea, I was there for four years. So you're away for four years and you've come yeah. back. And have you noticed, I mean, I know you're living, um, it won't tell people where you're living because you know who knows who's listening, but you're living hmm. in the Dublin region. Have you mm-hmm. noticed a meaningful difference in the sort of, state of the country since you came back? I have actually. I was very kind of surprised and shocked at the state of the city centre in particular. There's a lot of, you know, increased levels of vagrancy. Um, It's it's a very, a much more inhospitable place than I remember it being, um, which is very sad in my opinion. I thought, you know, it used to be a pretty great city and I, I don't really feel like it is anymore. Yeah, Grip's offices are in the city centre. I mean, I don't mm-hmm. have to pretend they're not because they're available on the internet for anyone who wants to find where we where, where our offices are. And you're in out, so you're in that O'Connell Street area fairly regularly. And I mean, I'm not because I'm based, thankfully, outside of Dublin. But it just feels to me that um, there, you know, we, and I, I I know this is shared. This isn't like Grip is a centre right publication. Our, our 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 readers tend to take a particular kind of anti-government, pro-law and order view of the world. But I'm struck by the number of people, Fine Gael voters, Fianna Fáil voters, people who would consider themselves centrists, liberals, who say to me every time I talk to them, um, Dublin is just out of control. It's wild. Um, and it, it it strikes me that an awful lot of this is, is the kind of tolerance of drug taking, in particular in the city centre, and the way that's been allowed to Bester and the way it's gotten to a point now where where the police, even if they were to fully intervene, fully engage, it would take them months to bring law and order uh, and safety back to the city centre. Talk to me about South Korea, because you were there for four years. Um, 
every country has crime, every country has its problems. Mm. But what are the differences there? What would you say the main differences are? I think the first one is optics. Like you will never see anyone, you know, in Dublin, unfortunately, you do see people who who look like they're strung out, who look like, you know, they're hobbling around, they're very emaciated looking. And we, we assume that that's, you know, caused by drug abuse. I and mean, you would never see something like that. I never saw anybody like that in four years. I never saw violence on the streets. There's a good bit of rubbish that does appear kind of as evening draws in, but it's just not, it's incomparable to Dublin. I never felt unsafe there. You were in Seoul, were you? Or where were you in Seoul? I was. Yeah, yeah I was what... mostly in Gangnam. So that would be the centre of the centre. Gangnam style. That's where that comes from. I didn't even know that was a place. I was in. <laughs> it is a real place. It's, <laughs> it is a real place. I was in, um, I was in Florence and Venice. Um, over the last couple of weeks and I have to say uh, and I think I said I don't know if I said it on Twitter but I certainly said it to some friends I mean those two cities would just put Dublin to shame I mean shame is the only word I can think of I mean they are both uh, big tourist cities obviously so so they yes. have an incentive but I mean Dublin is a tourist city and it has an incentive but everything from um, cleanliness to the amount of uh, Italian policemen you see on the streets um, they obviously have the only problem they really have, I think, is some pickpocketing of tourists. Um, but the 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 sheer difference in atmosphere alone was something um, else. I've been in Dublin a few times in the last year, and I have to say, I, I, mean, I lived there for the clo- the guts of a decade, not far from the city centre, down in 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 um, the Docklands. And there's an edge to Dublin. There's a sense that you there's a there's a general feeling of this is not a safe place. It could all kick off at at any moment. Now that's not to say it will, but there's a feeling in the air, and and it, that's a feeling that I think an awful lot of people share. Whereas Florence and Venice, I, you know, I, I, obviously big tourist cities, like I said, they have a big incentive. But I mean, you hear all the times about Italy having having problems. They would put Dublin to shame, and they're not the only cities that I've been to in the last year where where I could say that. Of all the cities I've been to, I've never I've never been to one that was so kind of. Disheveled. I mean, I've been to I've been to Pakistan. I've been to Karachi, and but that's like a whole other world. It's just when you when you get there, there's just you know kids working, holding signs for businesses on the streets, and the the kind of the poverty like there, the kind of vagrancy might be fueled by things like poverty on a huge scale that you know I don't really think compares well to a first world country like Ireland. So I, I do wonder, like, what's the excuse here? Like, how did it go da- downhill so so quickly? I was in Stockholm recently and, you know, although I didn't go to every part of the city, like I was in kind of the main thoroughfares around the um, the palace and things like that. And it's just absolutely spotless. Yeah, for me, it's a cultural thing. For me, mm-hmm. it is a sense. And I say I, I, every time I read a court case, I kind of get the feeling with the Irish state that the 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 overriding emotion when it comes to criminals is not that they have failed us, but that we failed them. You know, that, that if somebody is in court for drug offences or assault or violence. And I've been to the to the circuit court any number of times and sat through, normally, by the way, because I'm there because of a speeding fine or something, right? So I'm no saint myself. But then I've been there and sat through it. You get this rigmarole where somebody is up for something, whether it be burglary, robbery, some kind of like mid-level crime, not low-level crime, mid-level crime. And, you know, for, you know 47 previous convictions, judge. Oh, he's got a very hard life, Judge. He has uh, 
two young kids to support, blah, blah, blah. He's trying to get straight. This is his 47th conviction. And invariably, these guys are let walk. And there's this sense that they're only up there because we have failed them. You know, that if only society was nicer to the criminals, um, we would have less crime. And that, I think, has been the governing philosophy of the Irish criminal justice system really for the last 15, 20 years. And if you want a theory as to why Dublin is in the state it is, I would offer that one. And you see people like Aon or Weirdon, for example, who are constantly um, pushing for more injection centres in the inner city and more methadone clinics. It's all running in the same way, which is we have to provide more services to um, criminals. And I recognise that calling heroin addicts criminals is, is, is evocative, but it's technically true. They are criminals. Well, they are partaking of an illegal substance. Like, so what do we call that? Yeah. And what's more, when they take that substance, um, they pay for that substance. They're putting the guns into the hands of people who shoot other young men in West Dublin. All the money, and, and they're often getting that money by resorting to crime and so on and so forth. And yet we have to provide more services. Um and be nicer to the criminals essentially and the crime will go away I think that's at the root of it and I think Martin Nolan um, and we should be very careful what we say he's a he's an eminent lawyer and I'm sure he's applying the sentencing guidelines as he sees fit and there is no question here about his integrity or anything like that but I don't think he lives in the real world and I don't think that he is doing justice in the way that most Irish people would expect it to be done and I think the example you gave of that horrible scrote which is the only word I can use to describe him, who witnessed boiling water being poured on a, on, a, on a living human being and did nothing and then put his finger up to photographers to celebrate a suspended sentence. If that is justice, then I'm the Queen of Sheba. It, does, it doesn't ex- inspire great confidence in in Irish people, I would say. And for me, like as a, as a woman who has to walk around Dublin alone quite often, it doesn't inspire great confidence in me that if, God forbid, something terrible would, would happen to me or a friend or anyone for that matter, that, you know, that number one, there's d- sufficient deterrence in place to kind of make people think twice about doing that kind of thing. Or if it does happen that that person will be prosecuted in an appropriate way, like it doesn't it doesn't make me feel confident that those kind of things will happen. You um, you mentioned that you're a woman and you're around Dublin on your own. And obviously, we have great focus in this country in the last year or so, so uh, since the horrible uh, murder of Ashley Murphy um, on the safety of young women. Uh, do you do you experience any of, of that stuff when you're walking around? Because we had an awful lot of big conversation last year about catcalling and wolf whistling and abuse directed at women on the streets. Or is it more just of a general feeling of, I have to watch my back here? Um, I wouldn't experience too much of the catcalling. I, um, not really, honestly. I don't know if that's because I look kind of mean and busy or whatever, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I, for me, it's a it's a general feeling of you know fearing for my goods. Um, you know, am I am I somebody because I do sometimes carry laptops and things like that. You know, so I I just be be kind of fearful of those kind of things. I'm aware of a lot of stories of like people's phones being stolen in Dublin, for example. Nobody wants that to happen to them. It's an expensive item to replace, and so on and so forth. It's it's a general feeling of like being like quite unsafe. Well, you do go places, though, that, that uh, you're, you're quite brave in your reporting. And one thing I want to talk about was you were you actually went last week to the um, to the infamous slash famous slash very well reported on asylum centre in East Wall that really sparked 
the current national wave of immigration process uh, um, um, protests is the word I'm looking for. Um, you were in there, you talked to some residents in it, and it seems the sense of safety in Dublin is a problem even inside the walls of that facility. You, you said you were talking to a man and his daughter there who weren't that safe or felt that they weren't that safe. Yeah, so I wasn't inside the facility. Um, I know people who have been who don't live there, but uh, I met them at a location kind of adjacent to the facility. And they told me that there is quite a lot of unsavory behavior going on in there. They described a mafia-like contingent within the facility saying that some of the security guards are afraid of these people. They they identified them as basically gangs of males from places like Georgia and Algeria. Um, yeah, and you know, I honestly felt sorry for, for the man and his daughter because what what can what can anyone do for them? They're already in state provided um, like emergency accommodation. Like, is there emergency emergency accommodation? I don't like. I didn't know what to say to them. Really, it was, it was quite what, sad. What's what's daily life like in there? You got the impression. I mean, the, you know, for th- this man's daughter is is actually no. We won't we won't talk in detail about about yeah. that because just in case they might be identifiable. But hmm. but I mean. What's daily life like in there? I mean, are there showers? Are there facilities? Their privacy? They said that they they didn't feel that they have much. I suppose security. I mean, the the pods. The I, to my knowledge, the kind of the office building as it was is divided with these kind of partition things, which they said are you're quite flimsy and they don't reach the ceiling. And some of them at least have bunk beds inside. So if you're on a bunk bed, you just sit up. I'm I'm pretty sure you might be able to look into a neighboring pod or even gain access. And they also said that the the locks on the doors are magnetic and that they're quite flimsy, that you could shove them open if you really wanted to. Um and they, is, they said This is for clarity, this is like this is a, a large open floor, if you can imagine them, if the listeners mm-hmm. can imagine. And and they they essentially have, if you think of an open plan office where you have all those little dividers between desks, except they're a bit bigger and they go slightly higher uh, and they form bedrooms rather than working spaces. Is that a fair sort of summary? That would be my impression of what it's like, yeah, having seen some photos and video. And and in terms of sanitary facilities then, I mean, this place was not designed as a residential building, so there's no, there isn't like a wing of showers. It's not like a, a, presumably there's like one bathroom on each floor or something like that. Is that right? They told me that there are five showers available to to men, and we'd have to bear in mind that there's there's several hundred people there. Like they, I know that it's a it's just under. I think the official figure is just under four hundred, but they told me that they think that it could be as many as seven hundred, which I, I know sounds quite mad, but that's what they said. Um. So yeah, it's it's obviously not sufficient. They told me that they have to wake up at four o'clock in the morning to try and get access to the clothes washing facilities because there's only four washers and four dryers for everyone living there. I think you can imagine, like that's you know, it's not easy to kind of keep on top of things. Yeah, you get more. You you literally have better facilities in Mountjoy Prison, um, for for in terms of showering and washing and sanitation and all that sort of stuff, which makes me wonder. You know, I, one of the things that strikes me about all of this is the amount of lectures we get from our friends on the left about compassion and decency and looking after people and all the rest. But that does not strike me as looking after people, putting them in a building like that with those kind of conditions 
um, and and mixing. I mean, this this man has, as we said, he has a daughter under the age of eighteen. Mm-hmm. She's mm-hmm. one of the, there aren't many women in that facility. It's 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 overwhelmingly male. Even if everybody, and this is the thing, as a man, I think men have to be conscious of this: is that even if every man in the in a facility like that is on his absolute best behavior, that's got to be intimidating for a young girl to spend her life surrounded by as many young single men who she doesn't know whether they're threatening, not threatening. Uh, and it's got to be a worry for her father. Um, so it's 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 an, it's astonishing to me that the department uh, responsible, which is the Department of Children, would put a child into that kind of situation. Yeah, and some of the some of the things that she described to me were her being kind of leered at and people kind of staring at her waist in a, kind of a sexually suggestive way, which for a teenage girl, I just personally think it's disgusting. It's absolutely vile that like she has to go through that. And for her dad to have to see that every day and, you know, knowing that he, what can he really do about it? He said he's been contacting the, um, I think he said IPAS and there's a Jesuit NGO that's involved with the kind of the social end of things down there as well. And he said that they just kind of haven't really been engaging with them to, to solve the problem at all. So. Yeah. You also spoke, I think, to some people uh, who live near the centre. Who I mean, you did a video a couple of weeks ago for us with people yeah. who are, who are uh, some, some of these people were um, not born in Ireland themselves. They were people who had moved here, I think, legally for a better life. They, they'd purchased property right beside the facility. And they say, I mean, they, they, these are the furthest people you could possibly imagine from being a kind of a far right Iron First activist. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have serious concerns and they feel ignored as well. And they, they, they're looking in through the windows at, at this place and they're not liking what they're seeing. Yeah, the the, the couple f- that were from um, Eastern Europe, like they were quite devastated. They were devastated that they had, you know, in their own words, worked so hard. They were originally living kind of on the, the commuter belt quite far outside of Dublin for the purposes of being able to save money to afford this place. And they'd also put money in it to do it up. And now this happens and the wife was heavily pregnant and they just, you could just see it in their eyes. Like they were quite scared and bemused and like, you know, they don't have an end date for this. They don't know when or if this will be over. I felt, you know, it's, it's not really, you know, they're paying a lot of money. We all know how expensive rents in Dublin are. And mortgages, you know, they're 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 paying for that. They're paying to use the courtyard, which is like just divide. It just separates their apartments from this direct provision center. They're paying two thousand euro a year for the maintenance of that, and it's basically being shared by this asylum center that nobody consulted them about. Yeah, I can imagine that. I mean, I. Trust me, if you tried to do that in, in Dalkey or Kalini or Ballsbridge or Donnybrook, um, the lawyers would be on the case fairly quickly. I mean, and, and, and you don't have to, it's not just asylum, by the way. One of the problems we have in this country is a huge housing shortage because every time people try to build houses somewhere where people might like to live, the existing residents tend to be open arms and there are objections from board Planola. And I mean, I think, there was a statistic last year about the number of houses that had been objected to or, or declined by on board Planola in Dublin last year was in the thousands at planning stage because people, um, you know, didn't want new properties for this reason. And, and they didn't even want to live with people who had were going to buy those properties. So you can imagine the upset and anger of people who've just bought a 
bought an apartment essentially only to find that the commercially zoned building opposite them is no longer a commercial building but is home to 700 people who have no jobs nothing to do all day are living in little pods um the you know if you didn't fear antisocial behavior in that situation then you would have no awareness of human nature at all um yeah so and, and yet concerns like this are the ones being precisely shouted down and we're told that it's being exploited by the, the far right and so on i have sent you out um because i think one of the things that's very important for the media to do in this current moment is to talk to the people who are actually protesting because it's something that RTE and Irish Times and, and everyone else is really bad about at. They talk a lot about the protesters. They talk a lot about, um, you know, they call the protesters a lot of names, but they don't talk to them. What has been your impression? I mean, I, and I don't want to hide the fact. I mean, you and I are both sort of sympathetic to these protests. We think they have a point. So we'll declare our biases up front. But have you seen objectively how much of it do you think is genuinely kind of infiltrated by outside people to shove a kind of anti-immigration in general agenda? Well, I haven't, at the ones I've kind of covered, I haven't, I haven't seen that. I was at one in Crumlin and the people were, they they spent most of the demonstration shouting, Leo, 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 out, out, out. So I think that there's a huge amount of anger at the Irish government. I think that the anger is just, you know, it's spilling over and people who people who are, you know, by their nature, quite apolitical are just fed up at this point. Yeah, that's what strikes yeah. me, too. It strikes me as very similar to the water charges protests, which I think you were. Yeah. Before. Maybe you weren't. I know. Um, I think I was here. I, uh, I think I went to one. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, you're not allowed to go to any more protests, Fatima. You're, you're a reporter. But yeah. anyway, the the um, the the the. The water charges protest, it strikes me that there's a big overlap in sort of the kind of people who are getting involved. And they're people, by and large, who feel disenfranchised and really don't care what the Irish Times says about them, first of all. Because the Irish Times is... And I'm not picking on that newspaper in particular, but I mean, the media in general tends to give people like this short trip. Um, and they they feel... They really, just like with the water charges, they feel like this, is, and I disagree with them on the water charges, I should say, but they do feel like the system itself is geared against them and screwing them and their communities in particular. And it's not anti-immigration in general. It is not kind of like send all these people home. It is like, you didn't consult us, you didn't ask us, you you just you treat us like crap. Is that a fair summary of what they're saying? I think it is. I mean, I think that, you know, the government and the media, the kind of mainstream media, they they don't seem to really care about the concerns of of those thousands of people, be they men, women or teenagers, whatever, like they don't seem to care. And the more it goes on, the more the kind of the name calling seems to kind of spread. And then we have Drew Harris coming out and saying that, you know, people will be monitored and Simon Harris saying that people will be punished to the full extent of the law. And and then these attempts to to limit where people can protest. So I don't really it doesn't look like the government is has much willingness to actually address real concerns. Like every Irish citizen has a right to be concerned about how their country works. Conor Fitzgerald, 
who uh, writes a Substack in Ireland. I've tried to get him to write for Grip for ages, but he won't do it because he wants to stick with Substack. So go and subscribe to his Substack, Connor Fitzgerald. He's a great guy. But he wrote a piece um, this week, which I thought was really interesting, where he said that one of the things that strikes him about the current moment is that the government have ring-fenced the immigration issue so much in that all the political parties, all of the NGOs, all of the media take one side, that they actually have no one to shut up. They've ring-fenced themselves out of the conversation to the extent that they don't have leverage over any of these protesters. The threats don't work because these are people with... They don't, it's not that they have nothing to lose. They all obviously have families and things they care about. But they've no political status to begin with. So they've no... There's no political action you can take against them to shut them up. They, they can't defund one of their political parties. They can't they can't ban an NGO. They can't do anything that ma- meaningfully makes a difference because all those things have been done years ago. These people have been so excluded from the political process that the government are essentially powerless. All they can do is go on RTE and whine and try and limit the spread of the protests by deterring other people by getting involved, by essentially fibbing about the nature of them and saying these are... These are far-right people. Um, And most people, as we saw in an opinion poll this last weekend, are seeing through it. I I think more people, fewer people believe these are far-right protesters than believe they aren't. Uh, Fewer people believe the media are being fair and balanced than believe the media are being biased against them. So it's been really interesting to watch this dynamic happen. And um, I don't think personally, I, I really don't think personally that there's any existing sort of political movement on the right that's in a position to capitalize on this at next year's local elections or whatever. But I'm less certain of that than I was. I would have said it was impossible uh, just two months ago. Now I think the anger is brewing so much that I think people might be willing to to literally stick two fingers up and elect somebody who would have been unthinkable to elect um, just three or four months ago. I think you might be right. You know, what's what's the alternative? I see like Bertie Bertie O'Hearn is a you know, coming back into Fianna Fáil. And my, my first kind of thought was like, here we go again. Like, what does that change? Well, I, I, just, I just... We're talking on Thursday and I have a piece coming out on Friday, Fatima, that says why I would vote for Bertie O'Hearn for president. But I'll tell you why. I'll tell, tell, okay. tell, the, listener, I'll tell the listeners exactly why. Because I, I don't think that... Um, do I trust Bertie O'Hearn? No. But I remember when he was Taoiseach and I would take him in a heartbeat over the shower of moralizing, preening, lecturing um, politicians, NGOs, and, and journalists that we have at the moment, he is—he still—he is a man who you could have a pint with, which is is more than I can say honestly for a lot of the people preaching at us on our televisions at the moment. There was, there, you know, even you know, there was never a sense of Bertie that he thought he was better than any of the rest of us. Whereas at the moment, there's this constant drumbeat of it's not just you are wrong, it is you are wrong and morally inferior to us, your betters. Uh, and that is what drives me batty. And that's what drives me to, um, you know, if I had a, 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 a candidate to vote for who was anti all of this stuff and was just giving it all the two fingers. Thankfully, I live in Matty McGrath's constituency, so I'm sorted. But, you know, that, that's what will drive me to, to, to vote against them. Uh, and I never felt like that with Bertie O'Hearn. I never felt that... This was a guy who who considered himself to be on a higher moral plane to the rest of us in the way that the current government and current establishment seem to do on this issue and on so many others like climate change, like hate speech, like, um, you know, you name it, they're better than us, the transgender issue um, and so on and so forth. By the way, on the transgender issue, 
um, you uh, are unique in that you are the only person uh, that I, I know who was actually in court with Enoch Burke for um, many of his latter hearings. What was your, because this is a, he, he's a guy who has provoked an awful lot of interest. You know, my mother is fascinated by Enoch Burke and, and very supportive of him. Uh, even when I've written critically about him. What was your impression of, of him and all of that being in court and watching it? Uh, hearing him present his case um, on the, the first day of, of the, the hearing where he was seeking the injunction against the school, uh, I thought he had a very strong case, honestly. I think he, he argued it very, very well and he had very kind of well-rounded points against the school's handling of his suspension. And I, I do feel that, you know, the Judge Connor Dignam was almost trying to 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 agree with him and give him you know, let him win. Not let him win, like he obviously kind of would have to earn the win. But nonetheless I did feel like he had he made a very strong case, but in the end he refused to recognize his suspension to to refrain from attending at the school. And if he had done that, the judge would have granted his injunction. That was my understanding. And that was an injunction to stop the school firing him and having a disciplinary hearing about him. Mm-hmm. So I I think that a lot of those present in the court were left a little bit breathless by what happened in the end. There's an old saying, um, in American football and indeed in, in, in many spheres of life, it's called a bend but don't break defence where you basically, you, you you let the other team march down the field but you don't let them score. Uh, mm-hmm. It strikes me Enoch Burke kind of ran a break but don't bend defence in, in that he was, he was he, he, you know, it might have been sensible and logical, you might have thought, to bend a mm-hmm. little bit in that situation, give them a bit of space, i.e., don't go to school every day, and uh, and and but don't let them score. Whereas it strikes me, and this is just my personal opinion, that Enoch decided to let them score uh, without breaking. Uh, and I, you know, it is it is not for any of us to say whether that was wise or unwise. Um, it's not our lives, but it, it struck me that 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 watching him, there's a there's a, there's, there's a degree to which a little bit of flexibility probably would have tactically helped him. But he, he obviously feels so strongly about this that he's just not going to budge on it. But he wouldn't talk to you. You you were unable to get an interview with him, which was unfortunate. He wouldn't. Um and I'd actually I'd actually love to ask him a few questions. Like I was wondering myself, like what what does he want? Like what was his ideal outcome? And I think after much musing, I I think that he probably wanted the entire thing to just be thrown out, essentially. For the judge to say, look, yeah, you're absolutely right. None of this should have happened. Put it all to bed. But the way it did go, to me, it appeared as though if he had agreed to not attend while suspended and thereby being given the injunction, which prevented the school from firing him and having the disciplinary meeting, to my mind, wouldn't that have given him what he wanted? I I was just I I can't really reconcile the two mm-hmm. positions. It's it's something I'd love to to ask him about. But as you said, I didn't get the opportunity. Yeah, it's unfortunate um, because you know I think I think at the core of it he has a strong case, and it's interesting because this week 
couple of weeks ago, uh, I had the privilege of talking to Lee Shayeda, the Bruin of the Countess, and she'll be back on the show in the future, uh, I hope. I think she said she wanted to come back, which is, is always encouraging. But I was talking to her about uh, the, the whole transgender issue in general. And of course, this week, um, the National Council for the Curriculum has actually sent, I understand, its final recommendations for the new Relationships and Sexuality Programme to the Minister for Education. And she'll be signing off on that um, with or without amendments in due course. And we'll see what comes out of it. But Enoch Burke's case is kind of at the centre of the controversy around that issue because it really does come down to whether or not schools must treat as fact the situation where somebody has, you know, at a very young age decided that they're of the opposite gender and how they must present that to other pupils and how teachers must interact with it. And I think there's immense sympathy in the country for Enoch Burke just saying, no, I consider this personally to be deeply nonsense. I'm not going to teach it and I'm not Mm -hmm. going to go along with it. Um, mm-hmm. So that's going to be a, 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 a major um, issue. And there was also a piece today on the on the Free Press, which is an American website run by uh, a former New York Times journalist called Barry Weiss, which goes into great detail about this whole area uh, in the United States. There's a lady who was working in uh, basically a clinic for transgender people. She's married for a transgender person herself. She describes herself as being to the left Bernie Sanders. And her piece, in her piece, which everyone should read, um, she says she is absolutely horrified by some of the stuff that she saw going on over the past five or six years in terms of kids being put on hormone treatments, uh, parents deciding that their kids were transgender. In one case, she suspected to get back at a husband and the kid being put on hormone treatment and all of that sort of stuff. This is just a, a huge issue. And I think it's unfortunate that we didn't get into the meat of the dispute in the Enoch Burke case. And I think a lot of people in the press, including you who were there, probably felt the same way. But um, wh- where do you stand on, on on that whole issue as a young woman yourself? Because one of the things that, that Leisha was saying was that it's mainly young girls who are mm-hmm. who are going down this road. Have you any insights into why that might be? From my own experience, um, first of all, I I absolutely don't. You cannot change your gender with all the, the the hope and the goodwill in the world. Like it's not possible. But I do have sympathy for people, like anyone who you know suffers from gender dysphoria. Like I can, I recognize that. I'm sure that they, many of them at least, are genuinely suffering, and I do have sympathy for that. But you know, I think growing up like as a girl is it's it's difficult enough. I mean, myself when I was. I think around 12, 13, you know, without going into too much detail, like certain things happen to your body that you're not necessarily comfortable with and you might wish weren't happening, but at the same time, you can't really do anything about it. So I do remember myself like feeling really uncomfortable being like, I don't really want this. Um, And thinking that, you know, I would love for this not to be happening or for this to go away. So in the midst of all that, if somebody had come up to me and said, look, there's this thing called puberty blockers and if you want, you can go on them. It'll give you more time to think about this. What do you think? I think I might have been very interested in that. Yeah. And Leisha was talking as well about, I mean, without giving away your age, Fatima, you're not, that, she's a lot younger than me, folks. Um, and and I'm, 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 I'm not that old myself. But even, even at that, probably when you were growing up, um, when you were at that mm. age, we still hadn't reached the point where we reach now, which is something Leisha was talking about, where where 
pornography and the sexual expectations placed on young women and young girls at that age mm-hmm. is is just it's an entirely different world i mean girls on and this is the reality and i don't want to gross anybody out but girls of that age are now seeing things that many of us wouldn't have seen until we were 18 19 20 um and, and one of the things that alicia was saying which i thought was really really interesting was that the ubiquity of this stuff is is making women want to or i say women but young girls in particular want to escape that world and there's no conversation about that and instead what we have is this flood of young girls um often with autism often often in groups mm-hmm. and one of the things in that piece i'm referencing today is that it, 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 the person writing it was talking about how often it's groups of girls from the same class in the same school coming for these treatments so there's a social contagion element to it coming to escape that world and wishing to be different wishing to be men or wishing to be boys or wishing to opt out of that whole environment yeah, and at the same time, like a lot of you know, younger people are learning that the world is inherently misogynistic and that the West is run by this kind of like horrible patriarchy who wants to keep women down and oh how awful it is. So, you know, that added to the kind of the pornification of society. I can imagine that a lot of people, you know, when you're when you're that age, like when you're a teenager, the way you feel then you don't see an end to it. Like I think at least I, you know, as a teenager was quite bad at future pacing. Like I didn't really realize that, you know, certain negative feelings or whatever had an end date. I didn't mm-hmm. realize that. So I, I, I really feel quite sorry for kids who are going through all that, so much pressure and being handed, you know, offered this kind of magical solution, which like one mother told me that she felt that that was what trans was for her daughter, that it was kind of like a magical way out of all the kind of confusion and hurt that she was feeling. I actually nearly forgot you have an interview up on Grips at the moment with a, with a mother whose daughter went through through this. So what was her perspective on it? Well, she spoke in very strong terms. Like she said that she called it a, a body modification cult. Um, she described to me some of the, the, the surgeries that girls go through, like the, the bottom surgeries. And obviously they have top surgeries as well, which are double mastectomies. Um, she talked about one where it's it's basically the construction of, of a false penis mm-hmm. where um skin from the forearm, a large part of skin from the forearm is taken off and it's, you know, kind of adjusted in such a way and sewn onto the pubic area and the urethra is kind of threaded through to make a kind of a pseudo penis. Um, And obviously, like, you know, the the complication rate there could be quite high because that's shouldn't be there. That's not what those things are for. So, um, yeah, I just think, yeah, it also, and this is a a horrible thing to say as well, but like you you are, this is an objective statement. You Mm -hmm. you are rendering yourself less attractive to a potential mate or partner in the future. Um, so, so oftentimes these people are being, are being condemned to a life, um, of loneliness as well. And it's being presented as a way out of, of what they're, Mm -hmm. they're suffering. Um, so I thought so. Yeah. this lady's daughter, she managed to intervene before it reached that stage, didn't she? She did. Um, yeah, she managed to kind of, you know, I don't want to make light of it by saying talk her out of it. But she she did. They did manage to work through it together. And uh, she told me that her daughter, like she she has autism and I think she's a lesbian. But mm-hmm. um, she she didn't thankfully, you know, go down. She didn't get as far as hormones or surgery. 
But even like hormones, apparently if a girl takes those for as little as three months, they have unchangeable effects on her vocal cords, which will have this pretty deep voice essentially for the rest of her life. There's so many kind of side effects that I don't think are discussed. Like it can lead to baldness. Um, it's just, you know, even it's, other it's things not... like, like diabetes and so on. And yeah. So forth. So, yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's a huge issue. It's a growing issue in Irish society. It's an issue that's growing because of the, the, the sheer number. I mean, I'm aware of one teacher was telling me who said that 10 years ago, there were, there were no students um, mm-hmm. in her school and never had been, never had been. And this is somebody who's been teaching for 40 years. Um, an older person, you know, 40 years, never had a student uh, in, with that condition, and now in one school alone, there are seven, um, which is an extraordinary number, um, and it's it's replicated in schools right across the land, which is why the Enoch Burke issue is going to become, I think, much more widespread. Where why the curriculum thing is so important, and why this debate in general, I think, really matters. But we are running out of time, I'm afraid. Um, Fatima, it has been a joy to have you with me. It is a joy to have you with Gript. Uh, we're so glad you came and chose to work for us. Um, and uh, next week, uh, hopefully David will be back. But uh, until then, that, my friends, was the week that really was. <laughs>